0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: This is uh, going to be my last message in Exodus. I'm going to be leaving... Uh, exodus and going to something else god willing next week so um, i think if that is the case and it is um, it would be good for us to look back over this book and try to understand some of the things that we've learned in an overview before we finish uh, exodus 20 the portion of exodus after the ten commandments exodus uh, is a word that i saw frequently when i was in greece it means the way out uh, that's what we would see. You'd see it over the uh, exits in rooms, like where we were meeting. You'd see the word exodus in, in the Greek language, and that's literally what it is. It's uh, God, by his mighty hand and an out, his outstretched arm, led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, and in so doing, he proved himself to be a powerful savior and made a name for himself that lasts even to this very day and so that believing people when they read these accounts when they hear these accounts are strengthened in their faith and empowered to trust in him for their own salvation and to um and to do great things for him because he's a mighty god and he hasn't changed at all and so i love the things that we've learned in this book the book begins in chapter 1 with israel in egypt they went there under the time in the time of joseph uh, to escape a terrible famine in the promised land and they enjoyed the best of the land and Joseph, a position of great authority. Uh, but the time came when Joseph died and his bones were carried back to the promised land. And uh, uh, the time came also for Joseph uh, to be forgotten. And the Egyptians, the leaders uh, of Egypt that followed did not remember Joseph. And they enslaved the uh, Israelite people. The very thing that God had said in Genesis 15 would happen. In the time of the covenant cutting ceremony, he said, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, where they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And so that's what uh, happens at the beginning of Exodus. Another uh, Pharaoh who who didn't know Joseph arose and he enslaved uh, Israel, put them into bondage. Exodus 2 is the birth of Moses and that uh, remarkable story of how uh, Pharaoh wanted to exterminate all of the boy babies uh, among the Jews to control the population. Uh, his attempt at genocide, or at least at controlling the population. And Moses' parents, by faith, hid him uh, in a basket in the Nile River. He was rescued out of the uh, Nile by uh, one of uh, f- by Pharaoh's daughter, and was raised in privilege and an ex- uh, in education. He was, uh, it says in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, powerful in speech and action, having been uh, educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. So he was a specially prepared instrument, wasn't he, by God. And he spent those first the first 40 years of his life learning the ways of the Egyptians and um, just really in the halls of power. But it says in Hebrews 11 that he turned his back on a life of fleshly ease and sin so that he could be identified with his own people. And once when he saw one of them being beaten uh, by an an overseer, perhaps, or by an Egyptian, he went to his defense and killed him and hid his body in the sand looking this way and that, taking matters in his own hands. Not by faith did he act at that moment, but uh, he felt the passion rising in him and his action uh, came out of his love for his people. Well, at that moment, he uh, was forced to flee, became a refugee in exile, and he spent the next 40 years uh, tending somebody else's sheep on the backside of the desert. Uh, what a sanctifying time that was, and a time of great preparation. And so when the time came, he was ready. And in Exodus 3 and 4, we see his call. In the flames of the burning bush, the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, uh, Come near, and the sandals, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've seen my people in bondage, and I am going to deliver them. And in effect, he says, I'm going to send you. And Moses does everything he can to get out of it. He wriggles this way and that way until finally the Lord's anger is kindled against him. And the time comes for him just to accept the commission. Uh, Remember what God said when Moses said, uh, who am I that I should go speak to Pharaoh? God's answer was, I will be with you. Notice how he didn't answer the question. Uh, the question was, who am I? The answer is, you are irrelevant. The issue is, I will be with you. Now, I'm not saying that Moses was not specially prepared, that God wouldn't use his knowledge of the Egyptians and all that, and that he was a chosen instrument. All of that is true. But notice that God doesn't answer the question. The real issue is, is God with you or not? And so God sent Moses, and he went. He returned to Egypt in Exodus 4, and he began to interact with Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. Uh, Immediately, the outcome was bad. Pharaoh intensified their labors. They were commanded to make bricks without straw. Uh, it got much worse uh, before it got better. And isn't that the way it is? God testing our faith, testing our resolve. It isn't easy. And so they were commanded to make bricks without straw. Same quota of bricks, but now they had to get their own straw. And the people began to grumble and murmur against Moses. Not the first time that would happen. Uh, they wanted to. Uh, Uh, to blame him, really, for Pharaoh's wickedness and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. But it wasn't his fault. In Exodus 6, verses 1 through 13, God encourages Moses and comforts comforts him, even though God hadn't done anything yet. As Moses said, respectfully to the Lord, you haven't delivered your people at all. And it's gotten worse. And now, in effect, he says, now stand back and see what I'm about to do. So Pharaoh gets his warning uh, in uh, chapter seven, verse one through 13. Moses and Aaron warn Pharaoh, let my people go or terrible things are going to happen to you. And in effect, Pharaoh says, bring it on. I don't know the Lord and I'm not going to let the people go. Who is the Lord? He says, that's a faithful statement, isn't it? Who is the Lord that I should let the people go? Well, all right, we'll find out who he is will display his power, and so the plagues come. And from chapter 7 to chapter 10, we see the nine plagues, uh, one after the other, uh, each of them in some way uh, a judgment on Egypt's gods. We see first the plague uh, on the Nile, uh, the plague of blood, and all the fresh water is turned to blood. Even water found on a table in a pitcher turned miraculously into blood. Then come the frogs. Frogs everywhere, frogs in the bed, frogs in the kitchen, frogs everywhere, until finally Pharaoh relents and says, I'll let the people go, only pray for me, and then the frogs died everywhere. After that came the plague of gnats, tiny little bugs, and whereas... Pharaoh's magicians have been able to mimic uh, these signs up to that point. Certain imitations were possible. They said, now this is the finger of God. From that point on, it was the finger of God or even the hand of God, his outstretched hand, his mighty arm, working wonders for him. And so the Egyptians could, uh, the magicians could not imitate this. And then the flies came, and then the plague on the livestock, and then the plague of boils, and the plague of hail, and the plague of locusts, and the plague of darkness. Each one of these a judgment on Egypt's gods, and a display of God's incredible power over Egypt. You see, the fact of the matter is, as we've listened to the testimonies tonight, we do not serve a tribal deity, We serve the God of heaven and earth, and he can do anything. He can rule over anything. He is not just the God of the promised land or the God of the Jews in the promised land. He's the God over the Egyptians. And he can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, and he can judge the gods of the Egyptians who are really no gods at all. But you know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardened his heart, Pharaoh also hardening his own heart. Uh, God determined that there would be the full range of these plagues, ten in all. The ninth plague uh, came and went and uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart again and God hardened his heart and so uh, God spoke the last and most dreadful plague. In chapter 11, the tenth plague was announced. It was the worst of them all, the plague on the firstborn. And God at that point provided... Um, a protection for the Jewish people in the Passover. In Exodus 12, we have the Passover described and how uh, a lamb was taken and certain provisions were made for the Jewish people. The lamb would be sacrificed and its blood would be painted on the doorposts and a cross so that when the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over the Israelites. The clear indication was the Israelites uh, deserved to be judged every bit as much as the Egyptians. And without the blood, uh, the same judgment would have come on the Israelites. You really have to read between the lines in some of the later prophets, uh, for example, Ezekiel and Jeremiah to find out how much the people had been corrupted by the gods of Egypt, how they worshiped them as well, how they loved the gods of Egypt. Uh, Ezekiel is very clear about this. Uh, and so the people came out of of Egypt, out of bondage, already with an allegiance to the Egyptian gods, and they deserved to be judged every bit as much as the as the Egyptians did. But God made a way, the blood sacrifice, and uh, I'm sure that the sacrificial system and all of that, uh, the truth and the uh, and the teaching of that. Very helpful for explaining the gospel, not just to Muslims, but also here in America. How can God be just and also the justifier of those who have faith in Christ? Except by an exchange, a transfer of guilt onto the substitute and his blood on us and his righteousness on us. All of that beautifully pictured. In the Passover, isn't it? And it was no accident that Jesus was sacrificed or died at the time of Passover. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the tenth plague came, and the firstborn of Egypt did die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne all the way down to the firstborn of the lowest servant. Uh, But among the Israelites, those who obeyed the command. Uh, concerning the Passover, not one of the firstborn died. And so the exodus occurs in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12. The people are set free. They're, they're commanded to leave. And not only that, but they plundered the Egyptians. They went out with great wealth. They went out with, uh, with riches that were freely given to them uh, by the Egyptians. So they came out. They began to travel and they got to the Red Sea. And as they got to the Red Sea, you remember what happened. Pharaoh hardened his heart one more time, where actually the scripture says the Lord Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Enough wasn't enough. He was enraged. He was filled with pride. And so he got out the best army in the world, the chariots and the horsemen and the foot soldiers, and they came to hunt down these uh, Jewish slaves and slaughter them by the Red Sea. The people were terrified, but God appeared in in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and uh, separated the Egyptians from the Israelites and protected them. And then uh, the Israelites cried out to God, and Moses cried out to God, and God said, Stand still and see the salvation of God. And he sent all night a wind which separated the Red Sea. And parted it. And so the water was walled up on the left-hand side and the right. And the people crossed over on dry land. A great miracle. One of the greatest miracles that God ever did. But when the Egyptians tried to get in, you know, their chariot wheels were filled with miry clay and they couldn't move. And again, they discovered that the God of Israel was fighting for Israel against them. And they were terrified. Too late, though, because they were in the middle of the Red Sea and the water came crashing down. And Pharaoh's army was destroyed. And their bodies washed up on the edge of the Red Sea. And so God did a great deliverance. Uh, The uh, destructive power of Egypt was destroyed forever. And God delivered his people and brought them across the Red Sea to the other side. And so in Exodus 15, they have a great big celebration. Uh, Miriam leads the women and and there's a great song, the Song of Moses. And they sing and they celebrate uh, God's deliverance. Because God is a mighty God and the horse and the rider He's thrown into the sea. So that's the whole first section. It's the story of of the Exodus from uh, chapter 1 through chapter 15. Then uh, midway through chapter 15 up to chapter 19 is the journey to Mount Sinai. They travel to Mount Sinai, and they're in the desert. And it isn't long before they begin to grumble and complain against God and against Moses because there's no provision. There's no food to eat. There's no water to drink. And so God provides manna from heaven, bread from heaven, and also quail for them to eat. He also provides uh, for them water from a rock. And so the food, the bread from heaven and the water from the rock, two incredible pictures of Christ. Openly fulfilled, it says in the New Testament, fulfilled in Christ. You know, uh, God gave uh, you bread from heaven to eat. But it is not Moses, said Jesus, who gives you the true bread from heaven. For it is my father who gives you the true bread. For the son of man, that's Christ, came down and his flesh is uh, the bread of life. Uh, incredible pictures of that. And also it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the water that flowed from the rock uh, was a picture of Christ, the rock himself being Christ, the source of living water. And so God provided for their needs. And then finally they come to Mount Sinai. And out Mount Sinai, God uh, shows uh, his great power and he terrifies the people. He tells them to consecrate themselves and to abstain from marital relations and to put a fence or a boundary around the base of the mountain. And he gives a command that if anyone comes up on the mountain or even an animal comes up, it must be stoned. For now is the time for the law to be given to the people. God is going to descend on Mount Sinai in fire and darkness and in an earthquake and with a trumpet blast and with a loud command. And terror would come on all the Israelites And in this way, he set the stage for the giving of the Ten Commandments. And then he gave the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are in chapter 20, which we have seen again and again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant as ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So that's the review. Now we come to the end of chapter 20. In verse 18, it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burn offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. I see in the end of this section from verse 18 up through verse 26, a triple provision for sin. And I don't think it's an accident that this is what comes immediately after the Ten Commandments. The law is given and God knows that they will not keep it. He says so very openly in many places, in the book of Deuteronomy especially. You will not obey this law. You will not keep it, and therefore you'll be evicted from the promised land. says it in the Song of Moses very plainly. But here very subtly, because he gives them three provisions for sin. He gives them the fear of the Lord, which he says openly here is to keep them from sinning. He gives them prophecy and he gives them the sacrificial system. These three things are given uh, as a provision for sin. The first is the fear of the Lord. It was John Newton in Amazing Grace that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." We don't tend to look at the fear of the Lord as a blessing of God's grace, but this is exactly what God intended it to be. Look at this incredible statement in verse 20. Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, in this one statement, he says to the people, do not be afraid. And then he said, God has given you the fear of the Lord to keep you from sinning. It's kind of a paradox. You remember how FDR said uh, at the time of the of the depression, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But this seems to turn it around. When you fear the Lord, you need fear nothing. If you fear the Lord, you're fine. It's when you don't fear the Lord that you have a problem. And so he says, he comes to them and says, don't be afraid now that you're trembling with fear. You're fine. It's when you're not trembling with fear that you have the problem. It's when you lose your fear of the Lord. That's the difficulty. And so it says very plainly that God intended to make them afraid. He labored to make them afraid. He intended it. It wasn't an accident. Look at all he did. It says in verse 18 and 19, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. It's not as though God says, no, no, I didn't mean to make you afraid. No, he very much did mean to make them afraid. It was his purpose. He intended it. He knows how to make us afraid. Listen to chapter 19. It says on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the smoke of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Was it an accident that the people were made afraid? Not at all. God intended to make them afraid. And the people did respond in fear. Look what it says in in our, our section here in verse 18 and 19. When the people saw all this, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to ourselves. Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. And God wanted them to be afraid, as we're going to talk about in a moment in the prophecy section. But he intended that they would fear. What was God's goal? Was it that he just enjoyed being intimidating? Is that it? Not at all. But he says very plainly through Moses what he was intending. Look at verse 20 again. God or Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. That was God's purpose. That this display of his power would be with them always to keep them from sinning. So that the fear of the Lord would be the beginning of wisdom. So that they would walk in wisdom and that they would follow God in holiness. And consistently in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is connected with the word of God. The two of them are joined together, specifically the law of God. Listen to this in, in Psalm 19. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect Reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And then in verse 9 of Psalm 19, it says, The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. You see how there's all this discussion of the Word of God, the law of God, the precepts of God, and then the fear of the Lord is there. It is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Isn't that the purpose here? We have this great display of God's power. Then we get the law from Sinai, and the fear of the Lord is there to keep you from sinning as defined in the Ten Commandments. It was God's purpose to keep them uh, from sin. And so God taught his children to fear, and then by grace, his fear, their fears would be relieved. And so the first provision for sin here is the fear of the Lord. The second is this matter of prophecy. In order to get the full effect, you need to turn to Deuteronomy. Now put your finger here in Exodus, but turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. This is the fuller account in Deuteronomy. We get more insight here in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. And I remember reading this in Japan and just being so amazed by what this said. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22 through 29, there's a just a remarkable section here. Me. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. That's the Ten Commandments. He spoke the commandments, it says in Deuteronomy 5, Uh, In a loud voice to the whole assembly on the mountain, out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord, our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. And we have heard his voice from the fire today. We have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die. If we hear the voice of the Lord, our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Now, you can just circle that in the Bible. It's one of the only times God has ever said that about the Israelites. They usually say bad things, worthless things, things not worth writing down. But here they spoke well, for they spoke out of the fear of the Lord. Now we have seen that we can hear the voice of God and live. But if he keeps talking to us like this, we're going to die. And so they trembled with fear. And God said, I've seen what they've said. And everything they said was good. Now look at verse 29 and see what it shows you about the passion of God. Deuteronomy 5, 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep my commands always. So that it might go well with them and their children forever. Do you see that? There's a yearning here. That they would fear God forever. And that they would keep his commandments. And he agrees To the issue that they've spoken to, namely, I will not speak directly to them anymore, but I'll speak to you, Moses, come up on the mountain and I will tell you my words and you go down and report my words to the people. This is prophecy. The prophet stands in the presence of God and hears the word of God and then speaks it to the people. People think that prophecy is prediction. Well, that's the most spectacular and most clearly supernatural kind of prophecy. But prophecy is merely the forth of the word of God. Thus says the Lord. It could be about past things. God could be speaking about something that happened hundreds of years ago. It's still prophecy because God is the one speaking. Look at Deuteronomy 18. In verse 15 through 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is Moses speaking. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. So basically, God says, when you asked that of me, you asked for a prophet. And I have been your prophet, but the Lord is going to raise up a prophet Like me from among your own people, you must listen to everything he tells you. Verse 17 there in Deuteronomy 18, it says, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. So the gift of the prophet was established because the people knew two things. First, they could not live without God speaking to them. They had to have God speak to them or they wouldn't live. Secondly, they could not survive if God spoke to him himself directly. So he had to speak through a prophet. And so the people embraced the office of prophet, which Moses fulfilled for them. After Moses, there came other prophets and God spoke to the people through them. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at various times in many ways. The final word was spoken to God through Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. He is the final prophet. Although there were prophets chronologically after Jesus, he he is the final word. And all of the apostles, the prophets that came after uh, Jesus merely spoke the word of Christ. And frankly, all of the prophets spoke because the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It says in the book of Revelation. And so the focus of this gift of prophet was Jesus Christ. He was, he is the word of God. And so this is the second great provision uh, for sin, the matter of the prophet. The third provision was the sacrificial system. It says in verse 24 through 26, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burn offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goat offerings and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps lest your nakedness be exposed. And so here's the establishment in the law of Moses of the animal sacrificial system. The altars had been built in the book of Genesis by the patriarchs. Noah built an altar. Abraham built several altars. Isaac built an altar. Jacob built an altar, an altar, two altars. This is regular habit. But here it's established in the law of Moses on Mount Sinai that they would build an altar and that they would sacrifice animals. And much of the rest of Exodus is the establishment of the animal sacrificial system, the tabernacle, all of the ways that the animals would be sacrificed. And so this animal sacrificial system was God's provision for the Israelites concerning sin. We learn from the book of Hebrews, and really all we need to do is read the Old Testament to know, that animal sacrifice never really atoned for any sin. David said, I would offer bulls and goats if it could take away my sin, but it can't. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. And so God commanded and established the animal sacrificial system to teach Turkish Muslims that there could be an exchange. Our sin on the substitute, the substitutes righteousness back to us. This is the only hope we have for salvation. The big problem with Islam, there's no sacrifice for sin. The only way we can be accepted by Allah is that Allah is merciful. But there's how can he be both merciful and just? That's what I would ask them if there's no sacrifice if the sacrifice isn't the incarnate son of God, the very thing they deny concerning Isa, that he is, in fact, God in the flesh, the thing we embrace, he's the only way that his, his blood and his death could be sufficient for our righteousness. All of it prefigured by the animal sacrif- sacrificial system. Now, the great danger in all of this was idolatry. He said, don't make an idol. You've heard that I spoke to you out of the cloud and the darkness. Do not make an idol for yourself and do not take up an iron tool and work the stones that you're using to make my altar. You know what this is? It's a complete rejection of any human effort in salvation. Don't make a high place. Don't make a dressed altar. Don't get uh, plans for a spectacular altar from some pagan country and bring it back here and make it as one of the evil kings did. Don't do that. Just use simple stones. Stack them up with some earth and offer your sacrifice there so that you might be humbled and know that it is only by the hand of God that you are going to be saved for your sin. And so therefore we see a threefold provision for sin here. The fear of the Lord, which keeps us from sinning. We see also the office of prophet instituted here as Moses was established as a prophet. And then he said, from then on, God would establish the gift of prophet, the final prophet being Jesus Christ. And if anyone does not listen to them, they're cut off from among their people. All of these things were God's provision for sin. Now, what does it say to us today? We get the law of God written on our hearts in the new covenant. He takes these commandments and he writes them by the Holy Spirit of God within us. We have the fear of the Lord abiding with us along with the constant sense that we are adopted children of God. The fear of the Lord with us always that we might honor him and that we might walk in holiness and reverence. This is what the spirit of God does. The tongues of fire coming, purifying us from wickedness. We have the word of God, Jesus Christ, the summation, the fulfillment of all prophecy. He is the word of God to us. But finally, he is the sacrifice. His blood was shed that we might have a full and complete provision for sin. So when you read the Ten Commandments, realize that every single one of those commandments you have violated in some way. Each of us have. We are not free in any of these. And frankly, even after we have come to faith in Christ, we still violate them. We still, we still covet. We still are angry with our brother. We may not murder, but we still have anger. We still have lust. We still break the Sabbath. We still have other gods besides him. And so as a result, we need an ongoing cleansing for sin so that in the end, God might make us as perfect and as righteous as Jesus. That's his provision. And so we have all of it in Exodus 20. What a remarkable thing. And aren't you looking forward to the completion of your exodus? That Jesus might finally, in the end, lead you out of this sin-cursed world where sin will be no more and you will be in the promised land. Let's keep following him until he has completed his saving work.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes